Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I am your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. I'm excited to be back with you all today, and I'm thankful for all of you who have been joining us in this podcast and in this series on angels, demons, and Satan. And in this episode today, we are going to be covering the fourth and final part of our series. And today, we are specifically going to be covering the topic of Satan. Now, I don't think I'm being unreasonable when I say that in most evangelical churches or even just most churches in general, it is rather unusual, um, at the very least uncommon, to hear an entire lesson dedicated to the topic of of Satan. And and in some ways, that's, that's understandable because I think it could be said that the idea of, of dedicating an entire lesson to, to Satan maybe comes across as unnatural or maybe even taboo. You know, why as a church when we worship Jesus Christ and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, why would we take the time to focus on the study of Satan? And and that really leads us to kind of a follow-on question to that, which which could be asked in this way. Why is it, is it important to, to study Satan and to develop a biblical knowledge about Satan? Well, there's a few reasons that I want to kind of list out as we begin the study, a few reasons why it is important to study Satan like we are about to do. And, and the first reason that I would give is that Satan is the source of all evil and corruption in the world. He is the source of all evil and corruption in the world. We see this in, for example, in the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13 verses 24 all the way really through to 43, where where Satan is identified by Jesus as the source of all evil and corruption in this world. A, A second reason is that Satan is still to this day the chief enemy of God's people. For example, in passages like 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Peter writes to the church, he says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so with these two reasons, that Satan is the source of all evil and corruption in the world, that Satan is still the chief enemy of God's people today, we could could summarize the the justification for studying Satan is this. By studying Satan from Scripture, we as Christians will gain a better understanding of the world that we live in and the evil and corruption that does exist in this world. And as we're going to see today, that by studying Satan from the Bible, we'll even understand the nature of evil itself. And in, 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 in to a degree, how evil even works within human beings, even like ourselves. So this topic is important, and I I think that you'll see that as we go through this lesson today, that there is a lot to be learned from Satan. 
Now, when it comes to introducing this topic and introducing really Satan himself, perhaps the best way to introduce Satan, especially his nature and his function, is to go through the various titles and roles that Satan is given in Scripture. So with with that being said, uh, perhaps the, the first title or name that we can can mention and really study is is even the title that this this series is partly named from and that is Satan. The what we've the, the title that we've been mentioning uh, multiple times up to this point. Now, the the title Satan and I'm saying it's it's a title because technically in the Old Testament Satan is not a personal name. Satan is not the personal name of the devil. Rather, Satan or Satan in the Old Testament uh, simply means adversary. And this term could be used really of anyone, even human beings who served as an adversary to somebody else. Now, when it comes to the devil or when it comes to Satan who we're talking about, the Old Testament often refers to him as the Satan or the adversary, pointing to the fact that he is the chief he is the ultimate adversary of God and his people. So we could even maybe re- rephrase this when we're speaking of the devil as not just Satan as if it's a personal name, but we could even refer to the devil as the Satan like the Old Testament does. The next title that that uh, we've, we've already mentioned even to this point is the devil. And, and you see the devil quite a bit, this title being used of the Satan in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, really, you see it all over the place there. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, Satan, and maybe I could say for the purpose of our study today, we'll just refer to the Satan as Satan because many of us, we do understand that title as being a reference to the devil. So, Going back to our title, the devil, what the devil means in the original Greek, especially, is slander, or some or somebody that is going to speak against or disparage or insult another person, and and often, or in in several cases, Satan is described as an accuser of the brethren, an accuser of believers. He's Sometimes standing before God, we see this in, in Job, for example, where Satan, in a sense, slanders Job by saying that, well, his faith is not for nothing. Yes, Job is a, is a faithful and righteous man, but his, his faith is only based on all of the blessings that, that you, God, have provided to Job. And so that would be an example where the, the devil is living out, Satan is living out that function or that title as the slanderer or the devil. Another title, in addition to the Satan or the devil, is the tempter. And you see this also in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, for example, where the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness through the three temptations that are listed there in Matthew 4. And this obviously speaks to the, to the role of Satan as being a, a source of temptation. Perhaps the most famous and well-known example of, the, of Satan being a tempter is with Adam and Eve. Eve specifically, uh, the devil tempted Eve to eat from the forbidden tree. A fourth title 
So we've covered the Satan, the devil, the tempter. A fourth title would be the ruler of demons. And you see this in passages like Matthew 9, verse 34, Matthew 12, verse 24. And for the sake of time, we won't go through each of these passages. But but in these passages, Satan is explicitly identified as the ruler of demons, which implies and means that Satan has authority over the demonic spirits that we've already been we've already talked about in the previous two lessons, um, but that that Jesus and his disciples consistently encounter in the Gospels. So the ruler of demons. A fifth title that is related to the ruler of demons is the title Beelzebub. This title you see um, in Matthew 12, verse 24, where the, the Pharisees and, and chief priests, they're, they're claiming that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. And, and this term is, the meaning of this term is rather debated within academic circles. Um, there's a lot of suggestions about what this term precisely means uh, in its original language. But what probably can be safely concluded is that this term Beelzebub is is some somewhat associated with Satan's function as the ruler of demons. So ruler of demons, Beelzebub, are probably related terms in terms of function when it comes to the devil. Another title, moving on from, from Beelzebub, another, another title that we see ascribed to Satan is the evil one. And you'll see this in passages like Matthew 6, verse 13, uh, Matthew 13, verse 19. And of course, you'll see we're, we're quoting a lot from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but the evil one simply speaks to the fact that he is the, the source of evil. He is the chief of evil. He's the source of corruption and can be rightfully called the evil one or the supremely evil one is another way of thinking about that title. Moving on from that, another title that we see, and this, this time in the Gospel of John, uh, John 8, verse 44, for example, we see Jesus calling Satan the father of lies and murder. And what Jesus says in that passage is that Satan has been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. That he is the father of lies and murderers. And the implication in that passage is the unbelieving Jews and Jewish leaders who are seeking to kill Jesus, they're actually following in the footsteps of their true father, who is Satan, who, like them, has been a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So the father of lies and murder. Also in John's gospel, another title that we see, and this is in John 14, verse 30, is Satan is called the ruler of this world. Now this title... Um, really even ties in a bit to our previous podcast episode when we talked about the angelic rulers of, of the nations. And I had mentioned in that podcast that the angelic rulers of the nation ultimately fall under the authority and influence of Satan. And one of the reasons we concluded that is that here in John 14, verse 30, Satan is explicitly identified as the ruler of this world. And, and by world, what is meant is not that Satan is the ruler of the universe like God, but that when it comes to this world system, when it comes to 
the human institutions, human governments, every everything that, that makes up this present world system and this age that Satan has been given authority and rulership over our present world system. So that is what is meant by ruler of this world. And moving on to our next title, and this is related to the ruler of this world, and you see this, for example, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 4, is Satan is also called the God, lowercase g, God of this age. And really, this title is just the same as ruler of this world. Um, God of this age, that is God of this present age, this present era within the world, uh, world history and world system, that he is lowercase g, God or ruler of this age. The next, we have three more terms, and these last terms are all also related to one another. And the first of these three terms is the serpent. And we, of course, we see this uh, most clearly, really, when we were first introduced to Satan in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 2, verse 4, verses 13 to uh, 14. Satan is referred to as the serpent. Now, if you read various commentators or, or listen to various sermons on Genesis 3, some people will hold the view that by, by Satan being called the serpent, what was happening was that Satan was possessing or animating, so to speak, a, uh, an actual serpent or an animal, but that this term isn't necessarily a, a feature of who Satan is himself. However, I would argue that this term is more than just Satan possessing an animal or possessing a serpent. I would actually argue that Satan is rightfully considered to be a serpent. Uh, if you might recall in our first episode about angels, we talked about the seraphim and how uh, ancient Near Eastern tradition at the time actually identified, and even biblically, when you look at the terminology, the the seraphim, which were, was a class of angels, or is a class of angels, that they were viewed as serpentine angelic creatures. And also what, what kind of confirms this is the next two titles that we see. And the next one, this kind of this last group of three that we've been talking about is the great dragon. And, and we see this explicitly in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, specifically Re Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where Satan is called the great dragon or the serpent of old. And he's even depicted as what we would think of a dragon and uh, identified with the color red and all that kind of stuff, um, he is explicitly identified as the great dragon. Also related to this dragon imagery is another title, and this is the final title we'll talk about, is Satan is also referred to in a few places in the Old Testament as Leviathan. We see this in Isaiah uh, chapter 27, verse 1, also I would argue at the end of the book of Job, which which describes the Leviathan in detail. And when you look at Isaiah 27 or the end of book Job in the description of Le Leviathan, Leviathan is described as a essentially a fire-breathing dragon. I know it might sound very mythical and, and very, um, you know, almost outlandish, but 
going by what scripture says, um, Satan does appear to be identified as a serpentine dragon-like creature, at least in his original unveiled form is what I would argue, that in his unveiled form, in his angelic form, if we were to see Satan in his full angelic form, that it's very likely he would actually appear as a, a large and great dragon. And so these are the various titles. We've listed quite a few, but these kind of speak to Satan's roles and his function, even arguably, as we've just been talking about, his, his appearance, his physical appearance. Now, let us turn to the background of Satan. Uh, who is Satan? Where did he get his start? Where, how did he become the, the source of evil and corruption? How, you know, what is his story? And if we're looking uh, for information on the background of Satan, we don't see it in Genesis. We don't see it so much in the New Testament, where I would argue that we do see Satan and, and his history outlined is actually in the prophet Ezekiel. So if you, if you have your Bibles in front of you and want to turn to Ezekiel uh, chapter 28, there's a, specifically in the verses 11 to 19, there's and, and even the beginning of the chapter, there's this uh, condemnation that is given to the, to the king of Tyre through the prophet Ezekiel from God. And starting in verse 11, you seem to have a shift that takes place where maybe you could say in the first part of Ezekiel 28, the, the condemnation is actually given to the actual human king of Tyre. But then here, starting in verse 11, there does seem to be a shift where the condemnation goes further than just the human king of Tyre. And I think we're going to see that, that when we look at how this king of Tyre is described, uh, it can't be a human being. It can only be an angel and, and, and arguably Satan. So if we're looking at Ezekiel 28, verse 11, it, it reads, And again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emeralds, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On that day that you were created, they were prepared. You were, here in verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings, that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. And I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be 
forever. Now, as we're reading through this, there's several descriptions that make it obvious that this is not talking about a human being. This king of Tyre is, is said to have been in Eden, the garden of God. And we know that Adam and Eve were the only human beings that were ever in the garden of, e of Eden and were subsequently exiled from the Garden of Eden after their fall. This king of Tyre is referred to as the anointed cherub. And you might recall our, our discussion on the cherubim. Also, this king of Tyre is also described as being blameless or having been blameless and perfect. And of course, the only human beings that were ever considered blameless and perfect were Adam and Eve. And, and, uh, and we know that that is not who's being talked about in this passage. So I would argue, I think it's clear that this condemnation, this curse, so to speak, is being directed not to a human king of Tyre, but to the power, the true power behind the king of Tyre, who is the ruler of this world and the god of this age, Satan. And so, since we're arguing that this is Satan and, and that this is giving us a history of Satan and really a history of how Satan became corrupted, what can we say about Satan and his history from this passage? Well, the first thing that we could say is from this passage, we know that Satan's evil began internally. In other words, Satan's evil began in his thinking and in his mindset. It began in his heart, so to speak. Second, we also know that Satan's beauty, perfection, and splendor was the basis of his prideful and evil mindset. As it says that his heart was lifted up or he became proud because of his beauty and because of his wisdom. So we, we see those two things. So let me, let me just, in terms of listing observations from this passage, we can say that Satan's evil began eternally, that is in his thinking and his mindset, and that Satan's beauty, perfection, and splendor was the basis of his prideful and evil mindset. Now, what we could then ask from this, or what we should ask, is what triggered the transition from blamelessness to violence? Okay, we know that its basis was Satan's beauty and perfection, and that it began internally, but, but why did it begin? Why did Satan go from being blameless and perfect and the anointed cherub who was on the mountain of God and who was serving God with all the rest of the angels, why did he go from that to the source of all evil and corruption, which ultimately began within, within himself? Well, this is where I think we can kind of make a brief transition into talking about the, the nature of evil itself and, and how evil and sin do arise within a person. And, and really, the, the part of Scripture that may help us understand this the best is actually in the letter of James in the New Testament. And, and here, in several passages in James, we get an explanation or a description of why people are led into evil. And the first passage that we'll look at is in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. So if you're in your Bible, James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. And here, the Apostle James says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For not for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And here, lust is, is simply a, a term that means great desire for something. Often, the term lust does have a negative connotation. We think of it negatively. But there's other cases where this word can actually refer to a positive desire too. But long story short, lust simply means a great desire for something. And, and here, James is saying in verse 14 that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own desire, his own lust. And then in verse 15, it says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth, birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, another related passage in James that, that really builds off of what is said in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, is found in James 4, James 4, verses 1 to 2. And here, James gives us even more insight, and he says in verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So based on this second passage in James, we see that the source of conflict, really even the source of murder, and remember, Satan was described by Jesus as the father of lies and murder. Well, here in James 4, we see that the source of murder is unobtained desires, unobtained lust, envy, the, the pleasures that we have that wage war in our members. We want and we don't have, therefore we fight, we quarrel, and left unrestrained would ultimately uh, be led to commit murder. And so based on this insight, what can we say about Satan? We could say this, it is reasonable to conclude that Satan's evil and murderous thoughts began with a desire for something that he wasn't able to obtain. That there was some kind of desire, there was some kind of longing that Satan had that he was not given or was unable to tame to obtain that led him to develop the murderous and evil thoughts that, that began within his heart. And so... With this being said, what could be the possible desire, unobtained, unfulfilled desire that fueled Satan's eternal corruption? Was it to rule over God? And I think some people may be led to think this, that maybe, and, and there's some other passages that you know, maybe support this idea that he wanted to ascend to the place of God and, and be in the position of God. However, I think when you really consider the whole of scripture, I don't think it's likely that Satan wanted to rule over God. And, and I say this because Satan, and we'll see this in, in a little while, that, that Satan is completely under the control of, of the power of God. That, that Satan knows that God is, is his creator. Even to this day, if Satan wants to do anything against the people of God, he has to obtain permission from God. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth the long story shorter, or, or the way we could summarize this, is that I don't think Satan believed that he was more powerful over God or that God wasn't his creator. He obviously knew that. 
And so I don't think it's likely that he wanted to rule over God. However, I think what could be said is that Satan did want to rule with God or as God's direct representative. And if you think about this, Satan, as we saw in Ezekiel 28, he was the anointed cherub. And and what we can conclude from that is that Satan was the chief angel. He was the most powerful angel, unmatched among other creatures in beauty and glory. So understandably, if if somebody is going to be God's co-ruler or God's direct representative, then Satan would seem to be the obvious candidate. He's the most glorious, the, the most intelligent, the most powerful among all the angels. We'll also talk a little bit about that in, in a few minutes here. Therefore, because he's so powerful, because he's so glorious, he seems to be the logical candidate for being God's direct representative in God's creation, to be a co-ruler with God. However, this is not what happens. And, and really, what I'm about to kind of lay out is, is a theory, and, and this is a theory, scripture doesn't really explain this in, you know, explicitly or clearly, you kind of, it's, it's implied, I think you, you could say it's implied, but so take it with a grain of salt, but, but here is my theory about why Satan uh, became corrupt and why Satan developed his evil and murderous mindset. And what my theory is, is that Satan wanted to be co-ruler with God. He wanted to be God's direct representative. He wanted to be the second in command, so to speak, and probably felt that he deserved it because of his power and his beauty and his glory. But what we see in the creation narrative in the beginning of Genesis is that the angels were not put into this position and neither was Satan, that the, the, the creatures who... God intended to be his direct representatives, to be his co-rulers, to be his image bearers, was not angels, but men. Mankind, male and female together, were created to be, were created in the image of God, which, which means they were created to be God's direct rulers and representatives over the world and over creation. And, and why could this lead possibly lead to Satan's corruption? Well, not only does the creation of man mean that Satan is not going to be the co-ruler with God or God's direct representative, but if you think about mankind, and scripture talks about this, mankind is less powerful than the angels. When we were created with, with our flesh and blood, we're not spiritual beings in the same way that angels are, that technically we do not have the same power in the same wisdom as angels. In fact, Adam and Eve, and, and this is what you see in the creation narrative, not only were they not very powerful, but they were incredibly naive. They had no knowledge of the good and evil to the extent that they didn't even know that they were naked. And, and the significance of that, and we could talk, I mean, we could dedicate a whole lesson talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and all of the significant observations from that passage, but one of the implications that I could say just just simply from the nakedness of Adam and Eve and the fact that they were unashamed is that it, it signaled their naivety, that they, they had no knowledge of good and evil to such an extent that they didn't even know that they were naked. And if you think about 
even in, in our own context, who are people that are unaware when they're naked? They can run around and be, you know, stark naked and there's no shame. There's no awareness. They'll, they'll run out in public and with, with no shame at all. It's toddlers, right? You know, one-year-old, two-year-olds, three-year-olds. Those are the people that we see today because of their innocence and their naivety and, and their lack of knowledge of the good and evil, uh, good and evil. They are also, when they're naked, unashamed. And the implication of that is that Adam and Eve had the same innocence and naivety as toddlers do today. And so you can imagine someone like Satan, who is far more powerful than Adam and Eve, who is far wiser than Adam and Eve, far more glorious than Adam and Eve, could could very well be looking at the creation of Adam and Eve and be thinking, really? God, like, this is these are the people, these are the creatures that you are going to make your image bearers and, and, and make your direct representatives on the earth, that they are going to have a superior position in, in rank and authority than me, your anointed cherub, your, the, the supreme angel among all angels. You can almost imagine that taking place and that when mankind was created, when Adam and Eve was created and given their authority as image bearers of God, that it's very possible that that was the beginning of Satan's hatred towards God and, by extension, his hatred towards mankind who were created as the image bearers of God and as God's direct representative. And so, if my theory is correct, and I think it, I think it is very plausible from what, what Scripture reveals from James and Ezekiel 28, that this is very likely what was the cause and the source of Satan's hatred towards God and his hatred towards mankind and his lying and his murdering. So we've we've covered the background of Satan, the uh, uh, theory on why Satan became internally corrupt. Now let us shift a little bit and talk about Satan's activity and power today. Okay, so we we know how he started, but what about today? How does he interact with the world? How does he interact with God's people? How does he interact with God? What, what can we learn from Scripture about Satan's power and present activity? Well, one thing that we can say, and we've already briefly talked about this, is that Satan is the most powerful creature ever created. He's smarter, he's stronger than any creature created at this point in history. This even includes the archangel Michael. And, and the reason I say that is because there is a interesting and unique passage in the letter of Jude that kind of gives um, uh, indication of, of Satan's power even over the archangel Michael. And so I'm looking at the letter of Jude, and I'm looking specifically at verses 8 and 10. And here Jude is, is condemning false teachers and false prophets who in their foolishness and ignorance, they speak against angelic, uh, angelic beings. You know, they're, they're kind of like the people that will say, you know, I rebuke you, Satan, or I'm going to rebuke the demons. And, and he's condemning those people. And, and part of the justification for Jude's condemnation of those people is what he says here in verses eight to 10. 
And he says, yet in the, the same way, these men or these false teachers also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men, these false teachers, they revile things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals by these things they are destroyed. In other words, what Jude is saying is to highlight the foolishness of these of these people that revile angelic majesties and rebuke Satan, that in contrast to these people, not even Michael the archangel, who is far more powerful than any human being alive, that when he encountered Satan and disputed with him, and and even though this this event, this arguing about the body of Moses is not included in in Deuteronomy or in the, the Old Testament, we are given insight into this event by Jude here. And he's saying that even when Michael, the archangel, disputed with the devil, rather than fighting him in his own power, Michael, the archangel, actually appeals to the Lord's power and says, the Lord rebuke you, which indicates that even Michael could not match the power of Satan. Or we could even say the implication of this is that the only being who can defeat Satan and who is more powerful than Satan is God himself. That that is how powerful Satan is. But although Satan is the most powerful creature, as we just talked about and hinted at, when it comes to God, Satan is powerless. God is Satan's creator. God is, is his power is completely unmatched, which means that even Satan, even, even to this day, Satan is under the complete sovereign control and authority of Yahweh, of, of the Trinitarian God uh, and creator of the universe. Uh, several examples of this, um, the, the two most clear examples are in Job chapters 1 and 2, and then also in Luke 22. And in both cases, you have situations where Satan is going to God and requesting permission to attack God's people. So in Job's case, Satan is is um, slandering Job, slandering Job's faith, and is given permission by God to take away some of Job's blessings, to take away his family, to take away his wealth, to take away his health. And Satan has to be given permission to do that. In fact, what you see in Job is that whatever Satan is given permission to do, he cannot do any more than that. So when God said, okay, you can inflict Job with illness, but you can't kill him, that's exactly what happened. Satan did inflict Job with, with illness, but he could not kill him. Similarly to Job in Luke 22, uh, sp- uh, verses 31 to 32 there's an interaction between Jesus and Peter when Peter is talking about how, you know, he's not going to deny Jesus and, you know, that all else, all others may fall away, but, but Peter will stay faithful to the end. And what Jesus reveals to Peter is that actually, Peter, Satan has come to God and has asked and really even says demanded permission from God to, to sift you like wheat. So he went to God and said, let me tempt Peter let me sift him like wheat. But Jesus also reveals that Jesus prayed to the Father that Peter's faith would, would remain. And so what 
is revealed by Jesus is that, okay, Satan has been given permission to tempt Peter and cause Peter to stumble. But because Jesus prayed on behalf of Peter and on behalf of his faith, Satan was not able to destroy the faith of Peter. He was not able to destroy Peter in the same way that he destroyed Judas. And so we see from these two examples, from the beginning of Job and from Luke 22, that Satan, when it comes to God's people especially, he can do nothing apart from the permission of God. God is completely 100% in control of Satan and, and his activity. Now, there's a lot of implications from that that we could talk about. I mean, we could talk about, you know, spend an entire lesson talking about, well, what does that mean about God's control over evil itself? And, and I don't want to get distracted with that. But with it in mind that Satan is under the complete control, sovereign control of God, what does that mean for Satan's fate? And maybe this is the next kind of topic that we could turn to is what, what is the fate of, of Satan. So we know at this point the history of Satan from Ezekiel 28. We've gone through my theory on, on what caused Satan to become evil and corrupt. We've also talked about that, and we've mentioned several times in this, this lesson, that Satan is the, the chief enemy of God and his people, and that to this day he's prowling around like a, a roaring lion looking to devour anybody that he is able to devour. So we know that to this day he is still the the adversary uh, of God and his people. But what about his future? What is his fate? What is going to happen to Satan at the end of the day? Well, let me give you just a brief overview of the fate of Satan. So we know that Satan right now is the God of this age or the ruler of this present world system. However, what we see in Revelation, the book of Revelation, is that when Christ returns, when he comes back in his second coming and establishes his millennial kingdom on earth, that Satan will actually be taken and locked in the abyss, the, 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 the deepest, darkest part of the underworld for a thousand years. So during Christ's 1,000-year kingdom, Satan will be locked under lock and key, under chains, in the abyss, unable to tempt the world, unable to oppose God's people, to oppose God, the world will be free during that a thousand years from the influence of Satan. And that is partly why the world during the millennial kingdom of Christ enjoys so much prosperity and so much faithfulness is because Satan's activities are removed for that a thousand years. However, what we find at the end of Revelation is that at the end of the a thousand year kingdom, Satan will be released one last time so that he can go and and tempt the world and lead the world astray one last time. And what ends up happening is he's released from the abyss. He goes throughout the world, throughout the nations, and basically recreates another anti-God rebellion. He, he recruits hundreds of millions of people that are going to come up against the city of God and against the camp of the righteous for this one final showdown between Satan and God. And at that point, when Satan does this, when he recruits the nations to come back against God and in the city of God, at this point, Jesus finally and permanently crushes the serpent. 
And what we find at the very end of Revelation is that Satan is then thrown into the eternal lake of fire where the Antichrist and the, uh, the false prophet in Revelation are also going to be thrown into. So he's presently the ruler of this age, God of this world, actively opposing God and his people. When Christ returns at his second coming, he's locked away in the abyss for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, he's released one more time to lead the world astray one more time. And then at the final showdown between Satan and Jesus, he is finally permanently defeated and thrown into the eternal lake of fire. So we've covered quite a bit so far. Let's now conclude our lesson today and maybe look at some big takeaways from our lesson today. What can we say are some big takeaways and really, we can divide the the application or the takeaways of this lesson into two categories, practical takeaways and theological takeaways. And what we can say is practically what we can learn from, from this study on Satan is, is first that we as believers should not and cannot deny the existence of, of Satan or underestimate his power. And as a result, as Peter commands us in 1 Peter 5, we have to be sober and alert. Or as Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6, we have to put on the armor of God. We have to be ready and on the alert. When I was in the military, you, you would constantly hear, don't fall asleep on your post. Don't fall asleep when, when, you're, when you're doing guard duty because... When you do, the enemy can sneak up on you and 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 kill you. And, and, and similarly, we as Christians, we should not sleep on our spiritual post, so to speak. We have to be alert. We have to put on the armor of God and, and resist the schemes of Satan. And if you think about it for a minute, even if we were to illustrate this, imagine if you knew today, if somebody came to you and said, tonight... There, are, there is going to be a group of men that are going to try to break into your house and, you know, tie you up and rob your house and, you know, so on and so forth. That's going to happen tonight. How serious would you be about setting up defenses? How serious would you be about preparing and defending yourself from, from an attack like that? Well, same thing. We know we don't have to be told that there is an enemy out there who is seeking to destroy us and to devour us. We know from scripture that Satan is real, that his power is real, that, that his power uh, should not be underestimated. And that if we are not sober and alert, if we're not putting on the armor of God, then it is possible that we could come under, we can become prey of Satan. And, and, and finally, in relation to this, not only should we be sober and alert, not only should we put on the armor of God, but as Jesus really teaches us in even the Lord's Prayer, we need to pray constantly that God will protect us from the schemes of Satan. We need to be in constant prayer, and that's in fact one of the, the, the things that's mentioned in Ephesians 6 with the armor of God, that prayer is an essential line of defense against the, the schemes of Satan. So those are some practical takeaways. Theologically, here's what we could say is a big theological takeaway from this lesson on Satan is that by studying Satan in the way that we have, we can understand the source 
of evil and the nature of evil. Through Satan, we understand, and, you know, through James and the insight that he gives that we covered in this lesson, we can begin to understand the mindset and origin of evil, not only within Satan and within other human beings, but also within ourselves. That even to this day, even if you are a believer, a born-again believer in, in Christ, you are still, you still struggle with the flesh, you still struggle with desires and temptations. And if we're not careful, and if we let those desires get to a point that that it's uncontrolled and it leads to discontentment and, and to frustration, then that is the thing that can lead us to more sin, to anger, murderous thoughts, to lying, to all of the vices and, and pitfalls that, that we as believers may even now still fall into. So Hopefully, and I think maybe this is my my final encouragement uh, to you all, um, is that we would just we would we would adopt the mindset that the same. Maybe I'll I'll say it this way: that we, in a lot of ways, are no better than Satan. In fact, we didn't even start out as blameless and perfect as Satan. And if Satan, who was blameless, who was perfect, who was in the presence of God on the mountain of God in Eden, if even he could fall to his own lusts and desires and, and, and allow his beauty and his glory to corrupt him, that we also can fall into that same trap. And so we just need to pray that God would protect us from our pride, from our, from our desires, that, that God would help us really put to death those unholy and unrighteous desires and that we would just continue to grow into the image of Christ and and continue to be faithful to God. Well, that is, that concludes our our lesson on Satan today. And really it concludes our our series on angels, demons, and Satan. It's been a absolute pleasure to go through this, this study with you all. I'm excited for future studies and future study uh, series that we'll be going through. And so I look forward to having you back with us in this podcast. And in the meantime, I pray that, that you, would, uh, you would go in grace and that the Lord's favor would, would shine upon you.